Hello and welcome back to the spreadsheet test brought to you by Looks Good on Paper. As ever, I'm your host, Felix Pate. Uh, a little reminder, you can watch and listen to these podcasts on all the usual platforms, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, etc. Um, the Looks Good on Paper podcast has been going about a year now, so it's about time we had our first guest on. Um, so I'm delighted to welcome Andy Watson to the spreadsheet test today. Hello, Andy. Hi, Felix. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, very excited to have our first guest on. Uh, kind of returning the favour, as it were, because yeah. I was on the Stat Show, which you host on the Rovers Chat YouTube channel. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you just mentioned the year. I think I was has been going about twenty months now. Um, and it came so Dan, who's the uh, leader of the Rovers Chat crew, um, asked me if I'd be interested because he saw that I was like quite stats leaning. Um, Basically, he'd watched a lot of YouTube fan shows and realised that um, T4 was quite the, the thing that was up and coming at the time and whether I'd be interested in reproducing something T4-like um, for Blackburn Rovers. And, of course, I was. So we started with uh, the effect of Bradley Dack, and this was back in the summer of 2019. And uh, that went quite well. We got, like, uh, three or 400 views, which for... Rovsite YouTube channel at the time, we had less than 200 subscribers. So, and it was meant to kind of like build up from there. And thankfully, it has. And we just passed 1,000 subscribers um, last week. And um, the, the video content for the Rovsite has grown and grown. And now we're up to episode 56 of the Stat Show. The next one is going to be out this week, looking at Tony Mowbray and his position and whether the criticisms of Mowbray are proven or disproven by the facts and by the performance data. So that's going to be next. And you were on episode 49, I think. Yeah. So you might have been just before half, half century. Um, and we had we had a good laugh talking about whether this was the best Blackburn Rovers squad that we'd had since uh, since we'd had since uh, the relegation in 2012. And it was very close between this one and, and another one. But mm -hmm. Um, this one's kind of letting us letting us down a little bit now for four defeats on the spin as we speak and uh, Watford next, so not necessarily getting any easier. We'd like to avoid five if we can. Yeah, um, I mean, the rise of kind of fan channels on YouTube um, is phenomenal, I think, giving the fans a platform to speak out about the club in various forms of media. I mean, as you say, you've got the stat show, which you do, but obviously there's stuff like the watch-alongs, um, which I see promoted on Twitter. Um, you've managed to get some really good guests on there, um, like uh, Jay and Stevie. And I think this rise of the fans being able to interpret football uh, through their own eyes and through the data and the video um, has really led to this sort of rise in what we might term the fanalist. Um, do you want to talk about some of the, yeah. the people on Twitter that have started doing this work on fan channels through blogs and things like that, and now are starting to get work in the actual professional game. Yeah, it's become massive, hasn't it? And I guess if we take it as two different things, if we talk about the fan channels, first of all, I mean, I think Arsenal, probably, Arsenal Fan TV probably popularised that um, to, the, to the extent that it is now. Um, and that's not necessarily through... Um, fanalytics it's more through um, shouting angrily and getting box pops from outside the Emirates when they've just been embarrassed by yet another team coming to the Emirates and, and getting a result so um, I think that increased the vision of YouTube channels and then you have you know the, the, the teams that are kind of based on YouTube and, and loads of, play, of, of fans now are, are on there and every club pretty much has its own um, YouTube presence and thankfully for us at Rovers Chat we seem to have be the only not the only but the preeminent sort of Ro uh, Blackburn Rovers channel on there but there's there's hundreds of others and like I say um, I've been fortunate enough now to get some guests on the stat show who are of uh, a brilliant quality apart from this guy that I had on from looks good on paper he was he was just average but um, no I'm joking of course um, like you mentioned, Jay Sussick and uh, Stevie Grieve came on around about the same time as you did. And that kind of elevated it, I think. And that moves us on to maybe the fanalist side of things. And Jay Definitely. is 
probably the ultimate example, I would say, of of someone who started off doing the, the Blades podcast and um, obviously Blades Analytic was what he became known as on Twitter. And he was analysing the Sheffield United games and then expanded that out to the, you know, whatever division they were in and then expanded that out to the whole of football and other people kind of jumped on the bandwagon. And it, like I say, almost every club has a club analytics. We have a Rovers analytics, who is Joe Harvey, um, a good friend of mine who's very, very good. Um, definitely follow him if you don't already. He churns out some great stuff on Rovers. And it's great to see. And I think it's um, Bees Analytica who has a, a list of, of all of the 92 league clubs with all of the finalists that you can find on Twitter attached to that document. And not every club has representation, but most of them do. And um, if you are keen to follow fan, fan, fan analysis, I guess we can call it, then definitely get um, a copy of that document and and get them on maybe a list um, on Twitter and then you can keep up to date with what's going on in, in all the different clubs. Yeah, I'll definitely put um, a link to Bees Analytica's list down below. Um, and as you say, like pretty much every Premier League and EFL club has now got a couple of accounts dedicated to uh, talking about the post-game things and transfer targets, uh, opposition analysis. It's really proliferated across Twitter. You've got some really good um, tactics people who are combining a bit of the data and a bit of the video to create these game plans. And people like Eric Laurie, um, who's a analyst at Mulder, who puts out some really good um, tactical primers. Um, yeah, obviously, his, his following exploded, didn't it, when he started mm-hmm. putting those tactical primers on there? Yeah, you've um, got. He went, he went from about three k followers to twenty and. A few weeks. Yeah, brilliant. Um, obviously Ashwin uh, Dundee, who has just risen to fame. Now he's been officially revealed, I guess. Um, on Football Manager, he's had articles in the BBC, doing that remotely, doing Y Scout um footage and data analysis for Dundee United. As you say, Jay has just risen and risen. Worked with um Market, a consultancy firm, and now he's at uh, Luton as head of recruitment analysis. So it really proves that. If you're putting out good work uh, on Twitter and getting feedback and continually improving, there's no reason why people from clubs aren't going to notice that work and potentially ask you to do some work for them. Yeah, I think that we've really seen a tide turning over the last few weeks of people that we know who've done really good work on Twitter that have got jobs within clubs. And, it's, and I guess technology these days, we're obviously speaking together over Zoom and and having these discussions virtually and that's allowed play, uh, people to work in clubs that aren't even in their country so a lot of uh, ollie um, who i know quite well from from the finney has uh, recently got a job in belgium as a recruitment analyst there and we've seen a lot of this almost statements every day isn't there felix of someone saying um you know i'm delighted to accept yeah announced have you know, I'm on the recruitment analysis staff at X, Y, and Z Club, and it's great to see because so many people have got a lot of talent out there, and are now getting the chance to to do it. What I would say is that it's not easy. Um, you have to dedicate no. yourself to it. You've got to show that you've got something to say and say it well, and have a niche. Um, but the framework is kind of there now. I think if you like, to say, get advice, take advice, and act upon it. And keep on developing your your voice, um, then you know the route map is there, and I think it will only grow if, if, as long as these people are successful, as long as Jay's successful at Luton or Matt's successful in Bidens Lake. Yeah, um, but it's it's good to see that the, the the doors are opening for people like us, really. Yeah, definitely. And if anyone is listening, Andy has put out a really useful thread, uh, kind of a, a how to get into football analytics talking to you through all the steps, um, where to get your data from, um, which accounts to follow, which programs to use to do your data manipulation. And it's a really good first guide. Um, I get quite a few DMs and emails asking me how to get into it. So I'll definitely put a link to that uh, in the description below. Um, and you've actually recently got some a bit of work on the, the football side of things with uh, a bit of a startup called Five Yards, who we've spoken about on the, the spreadsheet test before. You're a, an analyst at Five Yards. Do you want to tell us a bit about what that might entail? Yeah, fortunate enough to be able to be one of those people, I guess, who've made that announcement um, working in the game. It's not 
directly for a club. It's not even directly um, to do with, you know, any governing body of football. We're, we're outside of it in a way, but um, using a lot of the similar skills that we use in, in traditional um, football analytics. So, so like you say, yeah, player analyst. And five yards, um, we, we, we're describing it as the transfer market for fans, really. So two days a week today, uh, we're recording on a Tuesday and also on a Friday, uh, we open up our platform and we have ooh, 600 now, I think, or around about 700 wow. now players on the platform um, who we as a scouting team, it's not just myself, there's a few other scouts um, in the team and we've assessed those players and we've rated them, we've kind of planned their careers out uh, ahead of them and they... They've got a price attached to them, and that price isn't necessarily their transfer market price as you would expect it in the real world. It's actually an accumulation of the amount of performance pay that those players will earn throughout the course of their career. So I guess the next question is what is performance pay? Um, you've got it down there on the slide. It's, it comes from three things that happen, either wins from games that they've started in. So not if they've come off the bench, only if they've started those games. Um, any goal that they score, and any assist that they make, um, and that's if they if they do that in the Champions League or the Europa League, or any of the top five leagues in Europe, or the Championship, the, the English Championship as well. So, and, and that's all graded though. So, a goal in the Championship doesn't carry the same weight of performance pay as a goal in the Champions League. Um, it's the Champions League players that earn the big bucks, and that's why the likes of Kylian Mbappe, um, Erling Haaland, who are young who look like they're going to have a young, a long career in the Champions League and in the top five tiers of sorry, the top five European leagues that earn massive performance pay. And that's why Kylian Mbappe is, I think he's gone up to 203 million um, recently after his just sensational display against uh, Barcelona. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, I think he's confirmed himself there as, for me, the best player in the world. Quite, quite possibly, definitely. Um, Certainly highest in our ratings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've really enjoyed being involved in uh, the scouting side of Five Yards so far. I've written quite a few reports using um, the LGOP data that we've got, but I think people are, I've just got this buzz around it. I think it's this, again, the proliferation of the availability of football around the world with tools such as Y Scout and Instat. You can find video footage of all these different exciting players around the world. And being able to, as you say, map out this career progression and think, well, where do they need to make their next step to to advance their career? And can they eventually get into one of these big five leagues? Um, I think it's really exciting. And I think people have really latched onto that concept. Yeah, you've been able to use your model, haven't you, on loads of different players and see if, you know, basically you're taking on us as, as yeah. the scouting team. You're taking on our... Um, opinion really and that's what's so enticing about it as well it's not it's not mysterious market forces that are moving these prices it's real life things that you can see on the pitch on the grass and then our interpretation of it as scouts whether we think that a player is progressing as well as they should be or whether we've actually mis mispriced them in the first place I mean we've had a lot of players who've moved up a lot this season because right at the start of the season we didn't know mm -hmm. um Pedri from Barcelona is an example of someone who I personally um, wondered what his actual skill set was. I didn't see him as electric pace. I didn't see him as a great finisher. Uh, as it turns out, none of those, neither of those things particularly mattered. His progression is very specific, and it's being on the edge of that box and being able to feed balls into the box for the players. And he's exceptional at that. And I didn't realise he was exceptional at that until you start seeing him more often. But if you're one of those people who can see that very quickly, if you've got a really good eye for a player, if your model tells you that this player is going to make it and you think that we've underpriced them, then you can make money out of this for sure. It's a long-term thing. It's a long-term investment. Um, we are developing new games all the time, which have a little bit more of an immediacy to them. But um, And it's not just about, you've said, getting involved in the scouting side of things. You don't have to commit any money to this. You can just sign up for free. You can do scout reports, which, if they're particularly good, brings you to the attention of us as a scouting team, who, and then we can promote those scout reports in social media. Again, this is all a part of networking. It's all a part of bringing your name out there. 
if you write exceptional scout reports on five yards for these players, then you will start to get noticed. And it's just another really cool way of getting your stuff out there. And you could win scout of the month as well, which I think, you, I don't know if you've won or whether you're close to winning this. I'm, I'm second or third at the moment. Um, Harry Smith's just overtaking me, but I've really enjoyed kind of the competition and trying to think, okay, who do I, who's going to have a good month trying to forecast that, looking at the fixtures? A little bit like fantasy football in a way, I guess. Um, but no, I think you're completely right there in saying, just get your name out there. If you've, if you've got talent, if you've got an eye for talent or you're good with the data side, you 100% can get noticed um, thanks to platforms like Twitter now. Yeah, and it's not just, you don't have to be hot on the data necessarily that, that could help in a certain way. But if you think that you're one of those fans who's just got a really good eye for a player and yeah. and who hasn't who hasn't sat in the pub watching, you know, any football or, you know, even just gone down to your local Sunday league side and gone, you know, that that guy could make it. And <laughs> we accept like and you can request them. And that's another person like a really good thing about five yards is that you can request players and they go into us and over time, obviously a lot of people have requested, so we can only put up a certain number per week. We're currently doing about 20 new players per week that have been requested. So you can always get them requested and uh, we'd still try and honour first-time requests if we can. And we've been successful at doing that, yeah. and keeping that going. Everyone everyone who's requested a player has had their first request uh, granted. So, um, yeah, if you see a Sunday League player that you think can make it, I mean, it, it, they have to... Re- get into one of these top five leagues or the championship um, to be able to start earning some performance pay. But, you know, some players do that. Jamie Vardy, obviously, is the archetypal example. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Chris Smalling came from Maidstone and he's now obviously beating Roma, I think, yep. um, earning, earning performance pay. And, you know, um, we're talking about expanding it maybe to internationals. We might have a, We're definitely going to have a Euro 2020 game going um, when it comes round, we haven't quite formalised what that will look like yet. But if you get involved in, in fact, you're involved in the Slack channel, football and five yards, you can actually get a say in what in, in the direction that five yards moves in. And um, and that's I think you've enjoyed being on that Slack channel. Yeah, some really some really good debates in there about um, asking about prices and talking about the various players that are going up, but also just football in general. Um, it's a really good sort of community and again that's another aspect that's popped up thanks to this um fanalytics movement is the community aspect that slack channel you've got twitter you've got um the an english go on twitter did um, the top 1000 analytics accounts um and that showed the real community and um which in which accounts are interacting with each other and it's the breadth of accounts on twitter um that are engaging in this kind of discussion now is phenomenal yeah, absolutely. It really is very supportive as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of people say that, but I've yet to kind of come across someone who doesn't really want to help you. No. And, uh, I, and the great thing about it is it's international as well. Yeah. You get a lot of people from all over the world pooling their knowledge, really. And and a lot of it, to be honest, goes over my head. I, I'm not a, a modeling expert. I'm not, um, I'm not even particularly good at programming languages or anything like that. But thankfully, I know people who are. And, you know, if I need something doing, then I can request the help of any number of people, thankfully, from that network who are, like you say, very, very accommodating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've definitely found that more on the the other side of so the, the football, the coaching side. I've been able to speak to some coaches and analysts and kind of get their feedback on things. And it's just this continual uh, improvement cycle. Um, now, obviously, the looks go on paper. We started, as I said, just under a year ago now. Uh, and we always used to do best 11s. We'd pick a criteria, we'd pick, pick a topic, and we would discuss our best 11. So naturally, with Andy being a Blackburn Rovers fan, uh, I asked him to name his best Rovers 11. And we're going to go through that now, use a few of our numbers, uh, and get Andy's opinion on why these players made it into his 11. So um, this is your team. Yeah. So, oh, look at them there, just sitting there in that pitch. Um I should caveat it by these are the ones that I've seen play myself. Yeah. Um, I couldn't go back to the, the likes of Brian Douglas in the 60s and uh, Derek Fazakali in the 80s. And there's obviously lots of Rovers legends who um, I hadn't seen play. So this is just from um, 1991, really, is when I first started going down to Ewood Park. And 
and that's the team that I've ended up with picking. I did want to go traditional 4-4-2, um, the formation in which Blackburn Rovers won the Premier League in 1995, but um, I realised that our fullbacks weren't the greatest and I really wanted to get <laughs> those three strikers involved. So I've ended up with the 3-4-3. And, and as you said to me in our, our conversation beforehand, it just looks good on paper, right? Exactly. So, that was... The whole premise behind naming this podcast, some of the uh, yeah. teams we've picked in the past have been a little bit suspect in terms of would they work on the pitch, but they worked on paper, so that was good enough for us. Yeah, this definitely would not work on the pitch. No. But, um, I can imagine uh, people would be looking their lips, look at, uh, going up against this side, getting in the sides of Samba and Nelson um, <laughs> in behind Duff and Ripley. That is, that is a huge hole that could easily be uh, taking a bad shot, but they'd have to have the... You have to have a good defence to be able to keep out Duff, Ripley, Janssen, Santa Cruz and Shearer. Yeah, definitely. Um, two guy prompting from deep and David Dunn. Let's just say this is a young David Dunn. Uh, his first spell. Yeah, his first spell. I mean, he was great. He was really good in his second spell, but his first spell where he got in England contention is is the David Dunn that I'm thinking of here. Okay, yeah. So um, starting with the goalkeeper, Brad Friedel. Um, was it... Aston Villa, by the time I kind of started watching football, but obviously made his name at Blackburn with that record-breaking um, streak. I think it was nearly 10 seasons he went where he, he didn't miss a game. Um, I was interested, actually, that you went for him over Tim Flowers. Was there any kind of reasoning behind that? Yeah, uh, the reason is Brad Friedel's a far better goalkeeper than Tim Flowers. Um, Fair enough. The, I mean, as you say... You, it's longevity, it's just command, it's shot stopping, it's every, I mean, he scored a goal, which is always, uh, as you can see there in the stats, which is always uh, a nice little bonus as well. Uh, Tim Flowers was great and, you know, he won the title with us, won England Caps, but Brad Friedel was arguably the best goalkeeper in the Premier League at one point. And um, I don't know that Tim Flowers could ever say that he, he was the best in the league. He had Seaman, he had uh, Peter Schmeichel yeah, to contend yeah. with at the time. Um, Frieda was our last, Blackman Rovers' last player to be in a, a PFA team of the year in, in the Premier League. He, as you say, he still holds the record for consecutive appearances in the Premier League, uh, 400 and something. And he, that only came to an end when he got to Spurs at the age of 42 and was finally replaced by Hugo Lloris, who's still... Yeah, one. So, and we're still getting games in his forties at Spurs as well in the cups in Europe, which is testament to his longevity. You know, had a, a twenty-five year career at the top, pretty much. Yeah, and he only came to when he came to us. Um, this is testing the age of some of the, your listeners, but he he came in whilst we were in the championship. He just had a really poor spell at Liverpool, um, where he couldn't get past David James. Every time he played, he made an error. And we were thinking, because we had John Fyland and Alan Kelly, who were both very good goalkeepers, and we were thinking, why have we, why has Sunes brought this guy in? Why has he brought this Liverpool flop in when we've got perfectly good goalkeepers? But it literally took about two games, and we realised that this is something different. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's been, he won the Wellington Cup with us, which was our last trophy, and he won man the match in that game. Uh, he's just he was just an outstanding goalkeeper and yeah. I've had the good fortune of having a podcast with him um, he, he spent over an hour with me talking about his Rovers career well, his career in general um, which you can find on the Rovers Chat YouTube channel so even if you're not bothered about Rovers but you, you're a big fan of Brad Friedel um, or goalkeeping in general definitely go and seek that out just type in Brad Friedel Rovers Chat into YouTube and it'll come up so um, yeah an absolute legend and we'll never have another one like him I don't think yeah, definitely. And that, that, as you say, bears out in the data impact score when he was at Blackburn of uh, 114, pretty much there. So a very solid uh, keeper, as you say, made a PFA Team of the Year appearance. Um, moving on to your back three. Firstly, Ryan Nelson, someone I remember first watching um, the 2010 World Cup when New Zealand somehow became the only unbeaten team in that tournament. Him and uh, Winston Reid at the back, who's obviously still playing now. He's at Brentford. Um mm. I'm obviously part of that team under Sam Allardyce uh, in the, the late 2000s, early 2010s. Mm. Yeah, and a, another one who moved on to Tottenham Hotspur as well, I think. So um, he was just the rock, uh, an absolute rock and mentality monster as well. Like, there, was no, there was no downward turning for him. There was no lack of confidence. This man is a leader. 
Um, he, you know, he didn't. He wasn't the best on the ball. He wasn't the quickest. But none of that really seemed to matter. Um, he was just in the right place. He had it all in his head, and there's, uh, he just grabbed the team by the scruff of the neck and said, "We're not getting beat today." And his partnership, we'll come on to his partnership with Samba, um, was one of the best centre-back partnerships. In fact, the, the last great one that we had really was Nelson and Samba. And, and as we came on that downward spiral, you can see he left in 2012. That was kind of the, the final nail in the coffin in terms of Blackburn Rovers' Premier League um, existence when, when Samba and Nelson left. And that left us very, very short in terms of quality in defence. But well, you can't blame him for leaving. We were on a downward spiral and mm. he still had plenty to give at the top level. So see his impact score, there was only just over 100. Um, I mean, he wasn't playing in the best teams. So. No, but it's, it's still a, you know above average in a time when Rovers were probably a mid-table side. So that's probably testament to his quality that he was dragging them to that standard, um, at least. Um, he broke my heart as well. One game, there was a, a 3-2 win for Blackburn against Everton. Um, that I didn't really want to bring up today, but him and Samba <laughs> both scored in that game. Um, and then someone from a, a slightly older era, but no less of a legend, um, Colin Hendry. Yeah, legend, I guess, is the word for this man. Uh, two separate spells at the club, interrupted by a little spell at Manchester City in between times. Um, but when he was brought back to the club in 91, um he just became Mr. Blackburn Rovers. And again, another one similar to Nelson, a born leader, um, would put his head in where it hurt. Um, not a bad um, goal scorer either. He used to sometimes play up front in his early days. Yeah, that bears uh, out in his uh, attacking percentile there. Overall, adjusted for the position he played, just under the 50th percentile for a centre-back is really impressive, actually. Yeah, and when we were struggling for a result or we needed a late goal, you would often be uh, thrown up front again to try and get those flick-ons. But again, someone you may not have even seen play, but um, pace wasn't anything like what Colin Henry was about. He was able to continue his career at Rangers and, and for Scotland for quite some time after he left Blackburn. But he was one of the key men in, in leading us to the title in 95. And there's no way that any Rovers fan would have a, an 11, I don't think, without Colin Hendry um, at the back. And that impact score is phenomenal. Actually. Yeah. I mean, I know probably outside of Blackburn fans, the image is slightly tarred by uh, a flick by a certain Paul Gascoigne at the European Championships. Yeah, but yeah. Whenever I think of that Blackburn 95 team, I haven't watched Premier League years and spoken to my dad about it. It was always about that spine of Flowers, Hendry, Shearwood, Sutton, Shearer, um, yeah. down the middle that was so strong for Blackburn in that title winning season. Um, and then lastly, your, your third centre-back, Chris Samba, uh, another who I kind of remember watching in my early days of watching football. And as you say, was a, a really good foil for Ryan Nelson uh, at centre-back. Yeah, he was the third of the three. I, I was oscillating between a few at this stage. I was wondering whether to go all modern and have like a, a deep line central midfielder in a back three or a full-back that could... Uh, Graham Lasso was in this position at one point. Um, so, but then I thought there's no way that Lasso could play in the back three. I didn't think so. <laughs> Chris Samba got the nod. Um, absolute giant of a man, but a gentle giant. You, you see him still, um, you know, down at Ewood sometimes and doing um, little interviews. And he's, he's just remembered exceptionally fondly at the club. But he was fantastic on the pitch. We picked him up for a, a basement fee and he ended up going for, a, you know, a ridiculous fee to Russia when we needed the money. Um, impact score very good um, again another one who could find the back of the net yeah. as you mentioned already against Everton um, but on a number of occasions he'd pop up with important goals obviously he was huge he was like six foot six and so he was always a danger from set pieces but another mentality monster like Ryan Nelson that's why they were such a good partnership you always felt with Nelson and Samba on the pitch that they weren't going to get beaten easily it was going to take something really good or something looking to to be able to score against us, and they weren't going to let players just get, get past them. So, yeah, absolutely, Chris Samba deserving a place in the in the defence for me. Yeah, definitely. And then just kind of speaking on centre backs, you've obviously got two 
quite young centre-backs uh, in on loan at the moment in Jared Branthwaite and Taylor Howard-Bellis uh, on loan from Everton and Manchester City, respectively. How do you feel they've kind of settled in so far? I know Howard-Bellis has only just joined, but do you feel that they've been good additions to the squad? It's difficult because, obviously, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've gone four games on a four-game losing streak, so the mentality of the fan base isn't the best at the moment, and with Mowbray having been there four years this week, um, people are starting to get restless in terms of the progress that we're not making and um, that they thought that we would be. So, And now that means that everything has been cast in a negative light. Mm-hmm. So bringing in both Branthwaite and Howard Bellis is being seen as a negative at the moment because neither of them are our players. Yeah. They're both very, very young. And because of injuries to Ayala and Lenihan, and they're our current first-choice centre-backs, and people are wondering how we've allowed this to happen, to have two teenagers who aren't Blackburn Rovers players filling those positions. It is, and when you look at it like that on the surface, it is a conundrum. Like, how has this happened? But each each of them individually, I still rate and I still think are going to be Premier League players. Mm-hmm. And I think they'll be Premier League players for a very long time. And both have got good chances of even making the England squad, in my opinion. Um, Branthwaite has had a rocky... <coughs> couple of games but he's he's tall he's good on the ball needs to improve that aspect of his game in my opinion but can use both feet has has the right mentality he doesn't seem to let things get him down and he, he's got good defensive instincts and Howard Bellis I'd say that's his number one attribute is his good defensive instincts he's fearless again another one who needs to improve his distribution um, especially long distribution and um, he's quite comfortable playing it short as you'd expect Manchester City absolutely yeah. to be able to do um he's not he's not the tallest but he's very combative and so I think he's actually quite a good replacement for Daryl Lenehan there's a lot of similarities between um Howard Bellis and Lenehan but yeah I think both of them are good I think they actually played all right in partnership together against Forest um it's just it's just that it was another defeat for Blackburn yeah. and everyone did it badly no, I, I totally understand what you're saying there. And as you say, when things aren't going well, lone players and young players can be two of the ones to take the fall earliest. And if it's a young lone player, then it, it can be the worst. Uh, I've seen it at Everton at times as well. But yeah, you're right. It's They are developing them for another club, but I think that development could stand them in good stead if either of them isn't to make the first team straight away at Everton or Manchester City. There's potential that they could come back um, next season. And it's hopefully if things do start to turn around slowly for Blackburn, they can. I think they've both got the ability to positively contribute um, to results. Um, So moving on to your your midfield four, um, Stuart Ripley, first and foremost, another title winner. Um, I know him, again, through history lessons from my dad, him and Jason Wilcox as the the classic chalk on the boots, wingers chucking in crosses to uh, Sutton and Shearer. How good was... Stuart Ripley in your eyes. We need a podcast with your dad. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Felix Payton. Um, um, yeah, so I, looking at that picture there, it almost exactly sums up Stuart Ripley. I know what he's about to do there. He's just standing the defender up there and he's about to shift it about 10 yards with his outside of his right foot, run after it as fast as he can, beat the defender to it and whip in a, a, a delicious cross for yeah. Alan Shearer or Chris Sutton or Kevin Gallagher. Um, that's that was Stuart Ripley. I mean, he worked really hard. He could play up front as well. He, he played up front a couple of times, but obviously we were usually quite well stocked in that area. So um, we bought him from Middlesbrough. He he actually, I think, because I did some research on him relatively recently, I think he played more times for Middlesbrough than he did for Blackburn in the 80s. Um, in, in the Yeah, about 200 game. games for Middlesbrough, I think he has. Yeah, and his, and his son as well. I mean, Stuart Ripley lives up. I live in Stockton on Tees, so um, Stuart Ripley actually lives up here and, and Connor came through the Middlesbrough Academy. He's goalkeeper. Um, but yeah, he, he played for England as well. He got in the England squad. But obviously he's known for that period, 92 to 98, as you got there, um, playing on the right wing for Blackburn. He moved to Southampton afterwards, but he was just electric for a good four or five years. And there's no way we would have won the title without his ammunition. Um, supplying the, the strikers and um, one of my absolute heroes growing up and obviously this is very much affected by the fact that I was 
what, seven when he joined and, and had that, that glorious little period of, of being a Blackburn Rovers supporter. Um, yeah, absolute hero of mine. Yeah, I think it's it's quite an interesting thing, as you say, like the chalk on the boots, beating the defender, whipping across, and it's so different watching football and the, the yeah. Premier League, specifically from the 90s, transitioning into the 2000s, and then what it is today. The the way the game's changed, um, a really good book, Michael Cox, um, The Mixer. I was mixer. just about to mention that, yeah. I'm reading yeah. that at the moment, The Mixer. Yeah, it transitions the Premier League. There's a chapter for each season, and it talks about the, the tactical trends that have changed. There you go. Um, if you don't follow Michael, on, yeah, Michael on Twitter as well, uh, gives some good insights during games, but yeah, it charts the progress and this transition from the winger to more of the inverted wingers where they were playing, if they're playing on the opposite side with the, the strong foot is one of the, the biggest tactical shifts I think we've seen. Um, and then and I don't you, think Strugriffley would have made it through at that point. He, no. he wasn't someone who would cut inside and be able to, yeah, I know he scored a few goals, but he wasn't prolific as we saw on the, the stats there, although I did see his build-up percentile was, was fairly yeah, high. Yeah, really good. Seven and defence as well at 60 is not too bad. Yeah, uh, and then two guy, um, someone who, who could hit a long-range goal if he needed to. Um, God, yeah. Um, but yeah, someone I, I saw right at the end of his Blackburn career. Um, saw him play a couple against for Turkey as well, um, but not someone I saw massively. Um but he was, as you, as you can see there, was there for eight years and was really at, at the heart of that midfield, I guess, uh, under Sam Allardyce. Yeah, soon I brought him yeah. in. And um, again, this is another one where the fans were like, why is he brought in this Rangers reject? He wasn't a reject, but a Rangers player to play in a position where we already had, you know, a copious numbers of players. Um, and again, he didn't take very long to find out, like, this man is an absolute cult hero of, of the club. Um, the most modern cult hero that we've got, I think. He, we did. There was a poll run by the club about Rovers legends and two guys was fending off all sorts of like absolute heroes. He beat Brian Douglas in the second round. Wow. What is going on here? Um, but that's the esteem that he's held in, especially for modern-ish supporters. You can see his, his career has all been in this century. Um, but he sat at the base of the midfield. He'd get stuck in, but he'd play in his armchair with a cigarette in his mouth, quite literally. Um, he'd definitely play smoking if he could. Yeah. And there's so many stories of him just going off, lighting up. He wouldn't even be in the half-time team talks. He'd be down at the fire exit having a few tabs <laughs> at half-time whilst the rest of them were getting tactically drilled. A proper throwback. Just, yeah, it was just pretty much allowed to, to kind of play the game his own way. And thankfully for us, that way was just flawless technique um amazing vision there's some great assists in there his build-up percentile there as you can see 93 um probably speaks to what he was all about and like you say he knew where the back of the net was from 35 yards um, yeah he's he only scored 11 goals but i bet 10 of those were absolute screamers yeah definitely and i, I think did he Playing that Turkey team that reached the semi-finals of the 2002 World Cup as well, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, was, yeah, that was a great Turkey. That was a really good Turkey. Yeah, it was a, a really interesting yeah. World Cup. Looking back on it, um, but now, as you say, the base of that midfield has become the essential area where games can be won and lost these days. And as you say, to attain that cult hero status in an eight-year career when Blackburn were kind of a, a middling Premier League team is mm. uh, just a phenomenal achievement, I guess. And then his midfield. His midfield partner, um, someone we mentioned when we were going through your lineup, had two spells at the club, um, yeah. David Dumm. When I was growing up, I when I pictured Blackburn, he was kind of one of the first faces that came to mind as well, which I, as, as an outsider, I don't know if that kind of speaks volumes of him as Mr. Blackburn Rovers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that's, I think that's true. He's from the areas from Great Harwood, um, which is only a couple of miles outside of Blackburn's limits. Um, he came through the academy. He was the captain at a young age. Um, he did as the honour of captain in the under 21s for a long time and, and got in the edge of the England squad um, and looked like he was going to uh, potentially break in and, and be a dominant midfielder for, for ages. And that didn't quite happen. Um, his move to Birmingham didn't work out. Um, he became, his, his most famous thing that he did in the Birmingham shirt was 
and attempted Rabona where he ended up on his face. And and I, I feel really bad that that, I mean, I've just done it there, but that seems to get brought up just as much as anything else there connected to David Dunn. But mm-hmm. he's he had a really great engine. He could go up and down. He, his dedication to the cause was second to none. Um, he had amazing quality in and around the box. Would always, wouldn't always pick out the right pass, but would always try and make the killer pass. And that's the type of player that sometimes that you need. Not someone who will keep possession, someone who will force possession to try and turn it into a goal. And if he wasn't finishing it himself, then he could set up. He was part of that amazing crop of young players that we had with um, Damian Duff, who we'll come on to in a second, I think, and Damian Johnson. Matt Janssen was in that squad as well. Um, so, yeah, David Dunn, he was... He just edged out David Bentley, who was amazing for Rovers for a very short period of time, but for longevity um, and, you know, just for his dedication to the to the Blue and White halves, uh, David Dunn deserves a, a place in that team. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, um, and someone else in that crop, uh, Damien Duff, um, went on to achieve Premier League titles at Chelsea, reached a, a Europa League final um, with Fulham. But yeah, as you say, came through at Blackburn. And you described Stuart Ripley as a, an electric winger, and that's definitely a word I'd use to describe Damien Duff at points in his career as well. Not as not as quick as Ripley, probably. No. But far more skillful yeah. and technically proficient. Um, he achieved the zenith of his career, probably, the season that he left us and then his first season at Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, first two seasons at Chelsea, maybe. He was, he was one of those... Um, under Mourinho in his first spell that he relied on to to open the door because obviously Mourinho, as we know, is quite a defensive manager and will rely on those forward players, Robin on one side and Duff on the other at that particular time um, to be able to unlock the doors for him. And I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen a player who would get me off my seat as much as Damien Duff down at wow. he, on In his last season for us, he, the number of times that I saw him pick up the ball and take on at least two or three successfully, I've never seen anything like it. And his move to Chelsea was very much deserved. Um, it was so sad when he left because obviously he came through the academy. He came, he, he, that fantastic um, championship season where we got promoted, he was one of the key men there. And, you know, I, I was quite sad that he's, once he'd lost that yard of pace, he wasn't quite as effective anymore. And um, although he did really well at Newcastle and Fulham, he wasn't quite the same as the Damien Duff. I remember rampaging no. left wing at Ewood. But um, what a player! And um, again, that that build up percentile is is incredible for him. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. You just you could just create something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, as you said, the build up good and the impact score of 117. There just there's not really been well, there's been no players below 100, which is very good, and it, it just pays testament to sometimes you need solid players and those players who are just kind of 10 to 20 percent above average can yeah. be those difference makers um at times and then moving on to your your front three you said you couldn't leave any of these three out um yeah. first of all the man i probably know least about um in this team and i, I saw you put are you having a conversation on twitter about um the kind of decline of matt jansen the other day yeah, I've, I read his autobiography last year. He, he came out last year, and um, I was get, that's one of the books I was giving away um, for people to pass on. You know, when they've read it. Yeah. And obviously, I figured another Rovers fan would really get some enjoyment out of it. Um, Matt Janssen, I, he came to us from Crystal Palace um, for a decent fee while we were still in the Premier League um, before we'd been relegated under Brian Kidd, and he got a, a little bit of a chance there, but there wasn't really that much sign that he would go on to be the player that he became for us, which was basically our leader into back into the Premier League in the second season where we got promoted. He was our top scorer then. Um, such a cultured left foot. He could play as a nine, he could play as a ten. Um, but his technique, again, his, his just knowledge of being able to be in the right place and what type of finish it would take to score. He was superb with his head, even though he wasn't a massive player at all. He was only about 5'11 and quite slight, but he just had a great leap and a great um, sense of direction with his headers. Um, really nice guy as well. Um, our first season back in the Premier League, he was our top scorer again. And he was on the 
on, he'd just been called into the England squad by Sven Joran Eriksson, and this was just before the 2002 World Cup. Um, this was the friendlies before that World Cup. So the fact that he got into the squad at that point um, meant that he had a real chance of making that squad. Um, but he, he turned up ill on the morning of the day that would have been his debut. Um, so he never got an England cap. And then the summer that he didn't make the England squad, he went on holiday with his girlfriend at the time, who's now his wife, um, to Rome and um, got involved. Did, was it Rome? I think it was Rome. And got involved in a, a moped accident, which he describes in the book. And that moped accident left him in a coma. And from that point onwards, he was never the same player. And reading his autobiography, it was all mental. It was all, he, it was, he could take on the world beforehand. And no matter what happened afterwards, no matter how he felt in training, no matter what people said to him, he even had Steve Peters, the renowned uh, psychologist working with him, but no one could seem to get him back to the level that he was before. And, that, and if that Mike Janssen had carried on the trajectory that he was on, We'd be talking about someone here whose impact score wasn't just over 100. This would be an 118, 119 player, yeah. at, at, at least in my opinion. I, I can't see anything other than that. He'd, he'd scored almost 20 Premier League goals in his first full Premier League season. This is not someone who was just a championship player. Yeah. Um, and it was heartbreaking to read that for me. I'm sorry, I actually get quite emotional about it, but he was like my he, one of my heroes and and to read that is, is is difficult for me as a fan. So I don't mind getting emotional. Yeah, I, c- I can imagine. And as you say, like me and you were, were both kind of really big on the numbers side of thing. But one of those things you can't quantify, as you say, is, is mentality. It's so important. You can be the best player in the world. You can have all the talent you want. You can be playing in the perfect system that suits your game. But if that mentality isn't there, if the, the hunger, the drive, the fearlessness the just desire to go out on that pitch and perform your best in front of 30, 40,000 people and want your team to win three points every week, it can all kind of come to nothing in the end. And I think that that mental and emotional side of football is something that I think could get explored um, a lot more in the coming years. There's a, mm. a guy I follow on Twitter called Dan Abrams, um, who's a psychologist who's worked with the England squad and a couple of Premier League teams. Um, and he talks about kind of two to 5% gains. And it's all about helping players with the confidence and saying, okay, this is the mental state I need to be in before a big game. I don't want to get myself too worked up. I don't want to get myself too chilled. I just want to be in this optimal zone where I can go out there, be confident and perform the absolute best that I can do. Um, and I think it's really interesting that that mental side of football given the emphasis we have on the data and the tactical side of things um, nowadays. Uh, moving on to... Yeah, it's funny because you talk about those marginal gains and everyone always assumes that you're talking about data or, you know, the way that you set your team up or something like that. But uh, like you say, there's just as much to be gained as getting all of these players in in the right frame of mind. And, and the thing about sports is you need to be in different levels of different states of nervousness mm-hmm. to be able to perform at your best. So... Um, yeah, it's interesting because Taylor Howard Bellis, who we just talked about a minute ago, um, he got a booking within two minutes of his that kind of first start for Blackburn, and he just went straight through um, and Nottingham Forest forward, and yeah. we see that, that he was possibly too keyed up, too uh, nervous, really, to, and they just wanted to make that first challenge, and he ended up getting the yellow card for it. So. Um, yeah, that was that's an interesting, uh, different take on it, really. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest example I can remember is the Brazil-Germany World Cup semi-final when the Brazil players mm. were so pumped up in the national anthems before they played Germany, yeah. and they just looked exhausted after five minutes. They spent up all this energy building themselves up for the game and then just got picked off. Um, and obviously that's now regarded as one of the biggest national travesties in Brazilian football. Yeah, um, I mean, they set themselves up for it the way yeah. they're going about Neymar, and they, they all come out holding a Neymar shirt. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Were, and they just, dedicated the anthems to him as well, and yeah, it was yeah. all a little bit strange and just a little bit too kind of overhyped for the occasion. I feel. Yeah. Oh, South America. Talking of South America, there we go. A, a Paraguayan forward 
one of the yeah. uh, one of the all-time greatest Paraguayan players. It's probably fair to say Rocky Santa Cruz, only there for two seasons before a, a big money move to Manchester City, but definitely mm-hmm. made an impact during those two years. He used twenty-three goals in fifty-seven league games. Um, he was really good, wasn't he? It's funny because a lot of people will be wondering why have you chosen someone who's just there for two years, but um, he was. He's actually only just, I think, announced his retirement relatively recently. He's, I think he's 38, 39 now. He's still playing in Paraguay at the moment. Um, but his absolute peak of his career in Europe was with Blackburn Rovers. And this is someone who played for Bayern Munich. And Won a Champions played. League as well at Bayern Munich. Yeah, although obviously he's a bench player. Man, yeah. He rarely started for Bayern. And Mark Hughes brought him into, I mean, it was a great signing. And in retrospect, Mark Hughes brought him in. He played two seasons for us, as you can see, his goal record there is very, very good. Um, especially for, like you say, Blackburn, who weren't we weren't challenging for titles. We qualified for Europe, I think, either one or both of the seasons that he was with us. So we weren't a bad side at all. But he was the one who made it a very, very good side. I think again, not to bring it up, but I think he won this play against Everton. He was just absolutely superb. He was one of those who could jump up and trap it on his chest and bring it under his spell. His technique was almost flawless. Um, he was great with his head. He just would run the channels. And this was when he was 100% fit. And that was the only downside to him. When he wasn't 100% fit, he probably wasn't as effective. He wouldn't run the channels quite as well. He, he became a little bit static and easy to mark. And, he's, and he didn't really make it at City. Um, so I think a lot of people look a bit down on, on, on his time. But at Blackburn, he was, he was brilliant. And I think anyone who was a fan of the club around that time would kind of nod in agreement and say Rocky Santa Cruz is one of the best all-round centre-forwards that we've seen down at Ewood. Not the best because yeah. we're coming to that play next. But of course. That impact, that impact score probably speaks for itself, really. That's a really high one. Yeah. Um, and as you say, kind of them fell victim to a, a big money motor city. Obviously, they'd just been taken over, had all this yeah. money, didn't really know what to do with it, went out and bought there's kind of five or six followers I can remember that never really worked out. The likes of Rubinho and Joe and Benjani were all bought in for big money and just never really worked out. Um, and they well, eventually worked out. That, no. At that time, they just literally had this money and didn't know what to do. Not like the Man City that we see now, where every purchase appears to be meticulously planned, um, you know, in advance. This is the Man City who were splurging and they splurged too much, I, in my opinion, on Rocky. Santa Cruz. Um, that's why I wasn't that upset to see him go because I knew that the price tag was huge. Mm-hmm. And he did come back to us on loan from City um, a couple of seasons afterwards, but he wasn't yeah. the same. No. And then, as you've uh, alluded to there, the uh, the pinnacle of this front three, the all-time Premier League leading goal scorer, won a, a league title at Blackburn Rovers, part of the famous SAS strike force, um, Alan Shearer. I mean, yeah, I mean, what you've said there seems to say it all, but it really doesn't, actually. It's, I, what can I say about Alan Shearer? He joined the club in 1992, just before the start of the Premier League era. He was already a very, very good top-level striker with Southampton, though there was no real inkling that he was going to be quite as sensational as he was. He scored twice on the opening day of the Premier League against Crystal Palace, two long-range efforts that still showed different sides to his game. One was a curler. One was a power strike. Um, this is a man who could score it, whatever goal that you wanted. And in his early 20s, he could pretty much do whatever he wanted on the field. He ran the channels. He was the best crosser of the ball in, in the Blackburn Rovers squad. Um, he could link play. He is another one who could bring it down his chest from a long ball, trap it, keep the defender behind him and set up the next attack. He could run in behind, as he did against Man United in 93 and thump it past Peter Schmeichel. And with him up front, Blackburn finished fourth in the first season, and that's despite him missing half the season. And this is where it starts. The injuries started. He had a really bad knee injury. Um, I think it was against Leeds in 19, at the end of 92. Um, missed the rest of that season. He, and Blackburn still finished fourth. They came back just after the start of the 93-94 season, hit the ground running straight away, um, and became top scorer in the league with over 30 goals. Um, the first person to, to do that in the Premier League era, which he would then repeat, I think, more times than anybody else has managed to do. Yeah, I think he did it three times. Yeah, and 
obviously 90, so 93, 94 was when we pushed Man United to the title. We finished second. At one point, we were one point behind them with only four games to go. And people forget that that was actually quite a good title race until, unfortunately, we faltered right at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, then, he, and then obviously 94, 95, and Chris Sutton was brought in for a record transfer fee that summer. They formed the SAS. Sutton would set up Shearer, Shearer would set up Sutton. And we, we, thankfully, with Ripley, Wilcox, Sherwood, Atkins, David Batty, um, Hengberg, Colin Hendry, Ian Pierce, and Greenwell Saw and Tim Flowers. Um, thankfully, I can still just name it's one that. Of the, it's, it is one of those teams that's just etching the memory, and you can reel yeah. the 11 off with ease. Yeah, exactly. And he stayed for the season afterwards where we played Champions League football exceptionally badly. Um, you think he only scored one in the Champions League, which is from the penalty spot against uh, Rosenborg. And Mike Newell actually scored a hat-trick in that game, so he was overshadowed in the Champions League. It didn't really work out for us, that campaign. And that was in the season where only the champions would would be in the Champions League, so uh, we were a bit of a letdown to the country there, um, unfortunately. But um, when he left to go to Newcastle, it, the entire time was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. I'm sure. Uh, but again, it was for a British record transfer fee. He couldn't. He was going back home. He couldn't really, um, you know, say say anything about it. You know, he just he just become top scorer at Euro '96. Um, Rovers were starting to lose the players that had, that had gotten to the title, and we didn't have Ken Dalglish as manager anymore. And and um, Kevin Keegan looked like he was building something at Newcastle, so. He left, and but look at that goal scoring record 112 goals in 138 games. Mm-hmm. That's just uh, sensational impact score of 162. I mean, you this is your model, like that's, that must be one that's, that's, that, that's, that's world class. Um, anything I say over 150, 155 is world class. So, yeah, for those those four years, dragging Blackburn to top four, top two champions in that time, um, playing really well for England as well. It's yeah, he was, for me, one of the best three to five strikers in our model uh, in the early 90s in the world. Um, as you said, two of the things that kind of stood out to me when you were talking about him there, the range of goals that he could score. You you see videos of him taking free kicks from 25, 30 yards and just absolutely thumping it in. was brilliant um, in the air. There was a goal at Euro 96. Gary Neville put in a really nice cross and just comes out of nowhere to head it in. There's obviously the trademark celebration where the rumour is he scored that many that he didn't want to celebrate. So it would, it would just be the arm in the air. But also you mentioned about the injuries and I think you know, our model really values minutes played. Um, and he did have these injuries, but I think what's more impressive from that is he had quite a few injuries and still scored and played at that volume consistently that he still ended up being the all-time Premier League top scorer, has got 260 goals when I think only two other people have got just over 200. The talk is always when a, a striker has a couple of good seasons, well, can he stay and can he beat Alan Shearer? The talk was obviously of Aguero a couple of years ago and now it's turned to Harry Kane and can he sustain his output? But 260 is just a, a phenomenally high number and speaks volumes of just how good a goal scorer Alan Shearer was. Yeah, he had to adapt his game because he had that serious knee injury in 92. He had another one, I think, in 96, 97, actually, probably. Like, And that stopped him from being able to be the player that he was. And I, that 260 would be well over 300, without a doubt, mm-hmm. um, if he hadn't had those. Obviously, he did, and you can't rewrite history. So um, the fact that he was able to adapt and become more of a, a penalty box striker... Um, speaks again volumes to his intelligence he retired from England early as well I think he retired when he was 30 and um, he scored 31 goals in 60 something appearance 61 mm-hmm. appearances um so you know and the captain of his country as well 1998 World Cup um which you know could have been a lot better for us again if if uh, what happened against Argentina hadn't happened so um yeah an absolute legend and I was really, really enjoyed going through that um, that eleven with you, Felix. Thank you for asking me to do it. 
no, no, it's brilliant. And I would certainly agree that it's an 11 that looks very good um, on paper. Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today, talking about finalists, Blackburn, five yards. I've really enjoyed it. So uh, thank you for your time. No, thank you for having me on. And uh, everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I'll put some links in the description um, to Andy's thread, to some five yard stuff uh, and the Bees Analytica list. Um, but thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, please, if you're watching this on YouTube so you never miss a video. Um, and we'll see you for another episode of the Spreadsheet Test next week. Bye for now.